Um, so I'm Avery Scott. We've already said that, but um, you've heard a little bit about me between the speaker bumper and our little fit there, but um, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about me just because I want us to get to know each other before we get into the really deep, vulnerable stuff, you know? So I went to Johns Creek High School, so <laughs> go Glads! <laughs> um, and I'm actually a graduated senior, so in the fall I will be attending the University of Georgia. Uh, go dogs! Like practically every other speaker here. Um, <laughs> And I will be double majoring in biology and dance. Um, so like Sam kind of mentioned, dance is kind of my thing. I've been dancing as long as I can remember, um, from the age of three up till now and into college. Um, it's really what I love to do, kind of like how if you're into sports or if you're into theater, dance has been my thing. Um, something I really, really love. Um, I have a younger brother who is actually lighting the stage right now, who has threatened multiple times to cut the lights on me while I'm talking. So that happens. It was him. <laughs> um, but it's been, it's really, we have a cool relationship because oftentimes I'm on the stage and he's lighting the stage and that's really fun to get to work with him. Um, but the most important fact for you to know about me for tonight is the fact that I love stories. I love telling stories through dance. That's one of the things I love about that art form is the ability to tell stories. But I also, I love reading stories, as you kind of heard about with the book thing. Um, I love writing stories. I love hearing stories. I have always been inexplicably drawn to the art of storytelling. I can remember from a really young age being entirely enthralled by the worlds of Lord of the Rings and Narnia, Percy Jackson, Harry Potter. And then, kind of as I got older, coming to appreciate the beauty of older stories and the more realistic worlds they paint. Stories like Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice and Les Miserables. And the list can go on and on and on. If you know me, you know I like to read. Come find me if you like to read afterwards. We'll talk books. It'll be great. <laughs> um, but I think that the reason that I'm so drawn to stories and the reason that so many people are drawn to the stories is they contain so much power. I mean, they're the focal point of discussions and debates. They're talked about in schools. They're passed down for thousands of years and they can define generations. Um, and I found that that is largely because stories contain certain truths embedded in them, just presented in a more palatable form. You see, the beauty of a truly well-written story is that in the end, you end up learning something, whether it's about your world or yourself or your society you don't even realize that you're learning until you reach the end because you're so caught up in the tale and the characters and the setting. So tonight, I'm gonna take advantage of that power just a little bit and I'm gonna tell y'all a couple of stories. So, first story for tonight. This is a story straight out of Greek mythology because I love Greek mythology and if any of y'all out there like Greek mythology, maybe this will be something new because I actually didn't know this story until I started researching for my talk. So. You know, maybe you'll learn something new. But this story in particular is about a young girl named Niobe. And Niobe was the daughter of a king. Um, and as such, she also was sent to marry another king. And um, with this other king, she ended up having 14 kids. It's a lot of kids. <laughs> uh, I felt kind of bad for Niobe when I read that. That's a lot of kids. But we do have to remember our setting, right? And this is set in ancient Greece. And at that time, your children were your pride and your joy. They were your bloodline, they carried on your name, they carried on your reputation, and if they were male, they were your heirs. 
and Niobe had seven sons and seven daughters. And so at the time of our story, her kingdom was holding a festival to honor the goddess Leto. And Leto was the goddess of motherhood, protector of the young, and she was the mother of the twin god and goddess Apollo and Artemis, which I feel like a lot of you all have probably heard of those. They're pretty common. Um, but the key thing to remember for this story is that those were Leto's only two children. And so the kingdom's putting on this big festival. They're honoring Leto. And, you know, do you think Niobe just went and thanked Leto for the blessing of her children and left it at that and was just grateful? No, we wouldn't have a story. But basically, Niobe shows up and she starts boasting and bragging because she loves her children and she wants to show off how many she has. And then she makes a fatal mistake. She says that she is superior to Leto because, well, Leto only has two kids. She, Niobe, has 14. And I'm sure all of you are smart enough to know that this is not going to end well for Niobe, but I'm actually going to pause the story right here for a minute because I have another story I want to tell, and there is nothing better than a good cliffhanger, right? So this other story I'm going to be telling y'all tonight is probably a little more familiar to you guys because it is straight out of the book of Daniel, um, but we're going to be specifically talking about Nebuchadnezzar and a part of his life. So if you don't know who Nebuchadnezzar is, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of... Babylon. And Babylon at this time was not just a great city, it was an empire. It covered the whole, almost the whole known world. It was mighty, it was powerful, it was wealthy, it took over everyone around it. And Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled all of it. Um, right before our story happens, he had had a really cool moment with some three guys in a fiery furnace. You're going to hear a little more about that later on in this week. But Essentially, at the end of it, he had this great conversion to Christianity where he learned that God is God and that he professes his faith. Um, and so we've kind of just had that moment right before our story begins. And our story begins with some dreams that Nebuchadnezzar's having. He's having some dreams that are troubling him, some dreams that are a little concerning. Um, and there's one dream in particular he really wants to know the meaning of. And so he starts asking all his wise men and all his councilmen, trying to figure out what on earth can this dream mean. And this dream was about a tree, which seems a little strange that a king of an empire is scared of a dream about a tree. But he had a good reason to be scared. And essentially, in this story, um, or the dream rather, he dreams about this big giant tree that stretches up to the heavens. Think like Angel Oak in Charleston, like huge tree. Um, but one day a holy one comes down to heaven and orders this tree chopped down, just completely taken out along with some other bizarre requests. And Nebuchadnezzar could not figure out what this dream meant. And he ends up remembering this guy named Daniel who had lived in Jerusalem, which is one of the areas that Babylon had conquered. And he remembers Daniel had interpreted a dream for him back before the fiery furnace incident. And so he calls Daniel back in again, and yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was right to be worried. Daniel does not have good things to interpret. In fact, he comes to Nebuchadnezzar and tells him that he needs to immediately renounce his sins or else awful things are happen to him. Now, Daniel was actually able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what these awful things would be, but I'm not gonna tell you all that because it's a little too much foreshadowing for my taste. 
Now, do you think Nebuchadnezzar did what he was told, repented of his sins, and moved on walking in the ways of the Lord? No, or we wouldn't have a story. So fast forward about a year, and Nebuchadnezzar is walking along his palace roof, you know, as one does, and he's looking out over Babylon, and he decides to make the claim that all of the power and might of Babylon is due to him. And in fact, everything that Babylon does is for his own glory. Now again, I'm sure you are all smart enough to know that this is not going to end well for Nebuchadnezzar. He succumbed to a moment of pride, and it's not going to be a good ending for him. Just like Niobe over here succumbed to a moment of pride and decided she was going to say she's better than her God. It's essentially what Nebuchadnezzar is doing over here. He is saying that he is better than his God. But I'm going to pause this story right here as well because I want you all to think back couple minutes ago to something I said at the beginning of my talk, um, where I said that the power of stories lies in the truth embedded in them. I think the same thing rings true for both of these stories here as well. See, I am willing to bet that a bunch of y'all had never heard one or both of these stories before, and yet you knew that it was not going to end well for Niobe and Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason for that is because you have seen essentially these same plot lines play out in your life time and again. Maybe you've seen a prideful friend who's taken the fall, who's had consequences for his actions. Maybe you yourself have dealt with um, whatever repercussions came with a moment of pride for you. And you know what? Maybe right now you cannot wait to see Niobe or Nebuchadnezzar get what they deserve because it irks you when that brother or that friend or that teacher maybe even gets a little too prideful and you just, you want to see just retribution play out. Or maybe you feel bad for them because you know how easy it is to fall into pride and you're hoping that maybe this time it'll turn out okay. Regardless of what you're feeling, regardless of where your mind went, the fact remains that these stories are still relevant today because we see their, the bare bones of them play out in our life today. That's the reason I'm talking about them thousands of years later tonight. So, in an effort to kind of further prove this point, I'm going to tell you all a third story. And this story is one from my own life. Now, we're throwing it back to middle school with this one, which was a while ago for me, maybe not so long ago for some of y'all, but we're going back to my eighth grade year. And this eighth grade year, we had, I had a particular ballet performance that I was in. Um, and this year was a special year because in the past, every year, everybody in my ballet class got the same part. Maybe we were all mice in Cinderella or all village girls in whatever show. Whatever it was, we were all the same. No one was better, no one was worse. But this particular year, there is a particular part that we got the chance to audition for. We got the, part, the chance to audition to be sapphires in Sleeping Beauty because yes, Sleeping of Beauty invites gemstones to her wedding. Don't ask me why. I didn't write the story. But that's the gist of it. And I wanted to be a sapphire so bad. Because here's the thing. Yes, they had pretty tutus and tiaras or whatever. But what I realized was that sapphires was a duet. That meant that 50% of that audience was going to be looking at me. And that meant that 50% of that applause was for me. Sound selfish? Because it was. And I would never have said that to anyone. I wouldn't even phrase it that way in my own head. But that's essentially what I was thinking. That 
I wanted the attention and the applause. And so I went in and I auditioned and I felt confident. Do you think I got the part? No, or we wouldn't have a story. But here's the thing, even though all of those selfish thoughts were in my own head and no one ever heard them, I still had to deal with the consequences of them. Ballet had always been this safe, happy place for me, but I started to not want to go to rehearsals anymore. I was kind of, I felt insignificant and I started to get really jealous. I couldn't be happy for my friends who had gotten the part because whenever I saw them, all I could think about was how I wanted it to be me, that that should have been me. Um, and I just felt really bitter inside. And ironically enough, I couldn't even be happy for myself because that year, we had three pieces in our show. And in two out of those three pieces, I had gotten bumped up and was dancing with a more advanced level. But I didn't even care because I was so fixated on the idea that I hadn't gotten the part that I wanted. And it may sound ridiculous, but I found myself just completely surrounded by all these negative feelings and emotions towards the people around me and towards myself. I started to, basically that show, <laughs> That show is just a mess in my mind. I have friends who to this day say that that's one of their most favorite shows they've ever been in. But for me, I have a hard time feeling that way because I look back and where there should be memories of joy and excitement, I just see anger and frustration and jealousy. I lost a lot of really precious moments to this bitterness and comparison that now having graduated, I would give anything to get back. And here's the really interesting thing. Last night, we heard Landon talk, and he talked a lot about the idea of Babylon and being surrounded by the outside world and how that surrounding can lead you into temptation and lead you into sin. But if that was the only thing that led you to sin, honestly, I never would have sinned. Because let me give you a little snapshot of what my life looked like at that time. Raised in a Christian household with Christian parents, Christian siblings, going to a Christian school with Christian teachers, Christian friends, highly involved in my Christian church with a Christian D group and Christian mentors. My only extracurricular was a ballet program with Christian teachers and again, Christian friends and students. Essentially, everything in my life was designed to point me towards Christ. You couldn't have picked a better outside influence if you tried, and yet at the end of my eighth grade year, I found myself completely drowning in my shortcomings, surrounded by my own sin. Because you see, sin is an internal issue. And I found myself in the same place that Niobe found herself. She went to a festival to honor her goddess. She wasn't trying to cause any trouble initially. She was trying to do the right thing to celebrate and honor her, and yet she still succumbed to a moment of pride. She still messed up. And Nebuchadnezzar, over here, he tried so hard to find wise and godly counsel. He had just had a conversion. He was seeking God, and yet he still succumbed to a moment of pride. He still messed up. And that's where I found myself. No matter what I surrounded myself with, I still found myself full of pride and selfishness and jealousy. It's the same is true for all of us, isn't it? No matter what we do, no matter what we surround ourselves with, we're still going to find ourselves succumbing to our internal sin and selfish human desires. So if we're the same as Nebuchadnezzar and we're the same as Niobe, I guess it's only fitting now for me to tell you how their stories end. 
Niobe, after she stood and proclaimed to the world that she was superior to Leto, Leto's children, Apollo and Artemis, heard about this. They hunted her down, they hunted down her children, and Apollo killed her seven sons, while Artemis killed her seven daughters in front of her. Her husband, in an attempt to get revenge for, her, for his children's deaths, hunted down Apollo and Artemis and was killed in the process. Niobe found herself a childless widow with no heir, no bloodline, no property, nothing. And weeping, she, if there was ever a time she needed a savior, this was that time. And so she turned to the only place she could think to turn, the god of all gods, Zeus. And Zeus looked at her and basically went, I can't help you. I mean, the best he could think to do was to turn her emotions to stone so that she couldn't feel anymore, so that maybe this emotional pain she was struggling with would be gone. And so Zeus, being the helpful guy that he is, ends up turning her into an actual physical rock, a side of a mountain, a cliff face, and they say that today, if you can find the right cliff face on the right mountain, that there's still an endless stream of water pouring from it. She still weeps. Even Zeus's solution didn't work. And thus ends the tragic tale of Niobe. Nebuchadnezzar, after he stood atop the palace roof and made his prideful claim, immediately all power and authority was stripped from him. He was driven out of his own kingdom by his own people. God took his sanity from him, and he was made to walk on all fours. He sat with the cows and the animals eating grass. They said that his nails grew out like eagle talons, and his hair grew long. And a kind of weird detail, but sounds miserable nonetheless, is that he was constantly drenched in dew. And he lived in this dehumanized, animalistic state, for seven whole years. But here's where his story differs from that of Niobe. Because, you see, while Niobe made a terrible mistake, suffered a terrible punishment, was unable to be saved, and ultimately died a tragic death, Nebuchadnezzar also made a terrible mistake. He also suffered a terrible punishment, but he was saved by two words. But God. You see, his God was able to save him. After those seven years, his sanity returned to him, and the minute his lips uttered the name of God, that glory to God, he was restored to his throne. His kingdom was returned to him, and in fact, his dominion was even greater than it had been before he was ever thrown out. So, two very similar stories with two very different endings. And here's another massive difference between these two stories that can't be ignored. So you see, while one is true, one is not. As interesting as Greek mythology is, that's all it will ever be, a myth. I mean, Niobe's story was invented by some creative individual who wanted to explain why water poured out of a rock. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he can be found in any world history textbook. He was a very real king, and his story is laid out in God's word. And while we're on the subject of analyzing text, 
Nebuchadnezzar's story, this particular story, I believe, was included in Scripture because it is the perfect picture of redemption. Because like I said earlier, we are Nebuchadnezzar. We have this sin problem, and time and again we mess up. We sit there and we look at what God has given us. We look at everything we have, and rather than being grateful, we think in our own minds, for whatever reason, we're better than God, that we know better. And the truth of the matter is that Niobe's story should be ours. Just as Leto had no reason to deal with Niobe kindly, we have given God no reason to deal with us kindly. Time and again and again, we see our sinful hearts, we see our warped minds, and we still somehow think that we're better. We still think we can do better. Romans 3.23 says that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. That's me. That's everyone. We deserve to die a tragic death. But Leto's not our God. No, our God promises us in Romans 6.23 that though the wages of sin are death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our God promises us mercy and grace and love even when we don't deserve it. And here's another really cool thing about our God. We can know that his plan has a purpose. You see, Niobe's punishment was the senseless slaughter of her children, born out of anger and vengeance for the slandering of Apollo and Artemis' mother's name. There was no purpose other than anger and selfish desires. But Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was a child of God, and God looked down on him, and he saw that Nebuchadnezzar needed help. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar was never going to go to him as long as he had the things of this world. Because Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was good. He was surrounded by wealth and power and all these materialistic things. And God knew that as long as he had that, he was not going to run to his God. And so God, in his kindness, took that from him, stripped that away so that Nebuchadnezzar was left with nothing to turn to but God. And the minute, the minute that he turned back to God... God restored everything to him because God does not want to see his children in pain. He loved Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to see him in the position that God had given him. He just knew that the only way to bring him closer to himself was to take that from him first. And so, it's what God does with us, right? He takes the dark and ugly and dirty things that we surround ourselves with, this internal sin that we cling so desperately to, he tells us to let it go. He takes it from us. He doesn't leave us naked. He doesn't leave us there. He then comes back and surrounds us with his mercy and his grace, love and truth until we're surrounded by God himself. He takes these stories of brokenness that we are living in, and he replaces it with a story of redemption. He replaces our story with that of Nebuchadnezzar's. You know, I would encourage you all to let him. Let him take those stories that you writing for yourself, those plot lines that you are so frantically trying to write, the broken, 
chicken scratch that you think is your masterpiece and let God write his story for you instead. Because I can promise you his words are going to be so much more beautiful and eloquent and perfect than anything you could ever come up with for yourself. Let him be your story of redemption. Because here's the thing. We love to cling to our sin. We love to hold on to whatever we have found our satisfaction in. But God sees that and he sees where we've placed ourselves. And rather than leaving us to despair, he sent his son and his son did all for us. We don't have to do a thing. We don't have to do anything. We just get to sit there and see what God has done for us. And we get to take that gift with open hands and we get to spend an eternity with our Lord and Savior when we did nothing to deserve it. How beautiful is that? And y'all, if you don't have that, if you don't know that what I'm talking about, that peace and assurance and joy that you can be living your life with, please talk to someone. That's what your co-leaders are for or your leaders. Talk to them tonight. If you don't feel comfortable with that, talk to a friend. If you're on a live stream, I'm sure there's somebody around you you can talk to. If you don't have anyone, talk to me. I would love to talk to you. Just talk to somebody because there is no greater gift in the world than the one that we have been offered. And all we have to do is get rid of our own expectations and our own plans and take what God has freely given to us. Like I said, I would encourage you all to let him because it is so worth it. Because Jesus Christ, he is a much better savior than Zeus ever could be. I want to pray us out. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this day, God. I thank you that we're even here at all. I thank you for the way that you've been working already this week and the way that we know you're going to continue working for the rest of this conference, God. I thank you for each and every person here because you have placed them here for a reason. You've placed them here for a purpose, Lord. I just pray as we head into small groups tonight, Lord, that there would be such openness and vulnerability, a willingness to share our burdens and share our struggles. But Lord, I also pray that there would be such freedom in that, that we would feel free and that we would feel open because you have already done it all that we don't need to be ashamed of what we've been struggling with because you have already taken that and cast it as far as the east is from the west. Lord, I just pray tonight that there would be people who find that freedom for the first time, that those of us who have been given that freedom would be reminded of it once again, Lord, and that we wouldn't take your mercy and grace for granted, that we would embrace it with open arms and open hearts. In Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.